Chapter Forty of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Elizabeth Clett, Houston, Texas, June two thousand eight. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself, by Harriet Jacobs, written under the pseudonym Linda Brent. Chapter Forty, The Fugitive Slave Law. My brother, being disappointed in his project, concluded to go to California, and it was agreed that Benjamin should go with him. Ellen liked her school, and was a great favorite there. They did not know her history, and she did not tell it, because she had no desire to make capital out of their sympathy. But when it was accidentally discovered that her mother was a fugitive slave, every method was used to increase her advantages and diminish her expenses. I was alone again. It was necessary for me to be earning money, and I preferred that it should be among those who knew me. On my return from Rochester I called at the house of Mr. Bruce to see Mary, the darling little babe that had thawed my heart when it was freezing into a cheerless distrust of all my fellow-beings. She was growing a tall girl now, but I loved her always. Mr. Bruce had married again, and it was proposed that I should become nurse to a new infant. I had but one hesitation, and that was feeling of insecurity in New York, now greatly increased by the passage of the fugitive slave law. However, I resolved to try the experiment. I was again fortunate in my employer. The new Mrs. Bruce was an American, brought up under aristocratic influences, and still living in the midst of them, but if she had any prejudice against color, I was never made aware of it. And as for the system of slavery, she had a most hearty dislike of it. No sophistry of Southerners could blind her to its enormity. She was a person of excellent principles and a noble heart. To me, from that hour to the present, she has been a true and sympathizing friend. Blessings be with her and hers. About the time that I re-entered the Bruce family, an event occurred of disastrous import to the colored people. The slave Hamlin, the first fugitive that came under the new law, was given up by the bloodhounds of the North to the bloodhounds of the South. It was the beginning of a reign of terror to the colored population. The great city rushed on in its whirl of excitement, taking no note of the short and simple annals of the poor. But while fashionables were listening to the thrilling voice of Jenny Lind in Metropolitan Hall, the thrilling voices of poor hunted colored people went up, in an agony of supplication, to the Lord from Zion's church. Many families, who had lived in the city for twenty years, fled from it now. Many a poor washerwoman, who, by hard labor, had made herself a comfortable home, was obliged to sacrifice her furniture, bid a hurried farewell to friends, and seek her fortune among strangers in Canada. Many a wife discovered a secret she had never known before, that her husband was a fugitive, and must leave her to ensure his own safety. Worse still, many a husband discovered that his wife had fled from slavery years ago, and as the child follows the condition of its mother, the children of his love were liable to be seized and carried into slavery. Everywhere, in those humble homes, there was consternation and anguish. But what cared the legislators of the dominant race for the blood they were crushing out of trampled hearts? When my brother William spent his last evening with me, before he went to California, we talked nearly all the time of the distress brought on our oppressed people by the passage of this iniquitous law, and never had I seen him manifest such bitterness of spirit, such stern hostility to our oppressors. He was himself free from the operation of the law, for he did not run from any slaveholding state, being brought into the free states by his master. But I was subject to it 
and so were hundreds of intelligent and industrious people all around us. I seldom ventured into the streets, and when it was necessary to do an errand for Mrs. Bruce or any of the family, I went as much as possible through back streets and byways. What a disgrace to a city calling itself free, that inhabitants, guiltless of offence and seeking to perform their duties conscientiously, should be condemned to live in such incessant fear, and have nowhere to turn for protection! This state of things, of course, gave rise to many impromptu vigilance committees. Every coloured person, and every friend of their persecuted race, kept their eyes wide open. Every evening I examined the newspapers carefully, to see what Southerners had put up at the hotels. I did this for my own sake, thinking my young mistress and her husband might be among the list. I wished also to give information to others, if necessary. For if many were running to and fro, I resolved that knowledge should be increased. This brings up one of my southern reminiscences which I will here briefly relate. I was somewhat acquainted with a slave named Luke, who belonged to a wealthy man in our vicinity. His master died, leaving a son and daughter heirs to his large fortune. In the division of the slaves, Luke was included in the son's portion. This young man became a prey to the vices, and when he went to the north to complete his education, he carried his vices with him. He was brought home, deprived of the use of his limbs by excessive dissipation. Luke was appointed to wait upon his bedridden master, whose despotic habits were greatly increased by exasperation at his own helplessness. He kept a cowhide beside him and, for the most trivial occurrence, he would order his attendant to bear his back and kneel beside the couch, while he whipped him till his strength was exhausted. Some days he was not allowed to wear anything but his shirt, in order to be in readiness to be flogged. A day seldom passed without his receiving more or less blows. If the slightest resistance was offered, the town constable was sent for to execute the punishment, and Luke learned from experience how much more the constable's strong arm was to be dreaded than the comparatively feeble one of his master. The arm of his tyrant grew weaker, and was finally palsied. And then the constable's services were in constant requisition. The fact that he was entirely dependent on Luke's care, and was obliged to be tended like an infant, instead of inspiring any gratitude or compassion towards his poor slave, seemed only to increase his irritability and cruelty. As he lay there on his bed, a mere degraded wreck of manhood, he took into his head the strangest freaks of despotism, and if Luke hesitated to submit to his orders, the constable was immediately sent for. Some of these freaks were of a nature too filthy to be repeated. When I fled from the house of bondage, I left poor Luke still chained to the bedside of this cruel and disgusting wretch. One day, when I had been requested to do an errand for Mrs. Bruce, I was hurrying through back streets, as usual, when I saw a young man approaching, whose face was familiar to me. As he came nearer, I recognized Luke. I always rejoiced to see or hear of any one who had escaped from the black pit. I was peculiarly glad to see him on northern soil, though I no longer called it free soil. I well remembered what a desolate feeling it was to be alone among strangers, and I went up to him and greeted him cordially. At first he did not know me, but when I mentioned my name he remembered all about me. I told him of the fugitive slave law, and asked him if he did not know that New York was a city of kidnappers. He replied, "'The risk ain't so bad for me as tis for you, cause I runned away from the speculator and you runned away from the massa. Dem speculators won't spend their money to come here for a runaway, if dey ain't certain sure to put their hands right on him. And I tell you, I's took good care about dat. I had two hard times down dar to let him catch dis nigger.' He then told me of the advice he had received and the plans he had laid. I asked if he had enough money to take him to Canada. "'Pend upon it, I have,' he replied. "'I took care for that. 
I've been working all my days for them cussed whites, and got no pay but kicks and cuffs. So I thought this nigger had a right to money enough to bring him to the free states. Massa Henry, he lived till everybody'd wish him dead, and when he did die, I knowed a devil would have him, and wouldn't want him to bring his money along, too. So I took some of his bills, and put him in the pocket of his old trousers. And when he was buried, dis nigger asked for them old trousers, and dey was give to me. With a low, chuckling laugh, he added, You see, I didn't steal it. They gub it to me. I tell you, I had mighty hard time to keep the speculator from finding it, but he didn't get it. This is a fair specimen of how the moral sense is educated by slavery. When a man has his wages stolen from him year after year, and the laws sanction and enforce the theft, how can he be expected to have more regard to honesty than has the man who robs him? I have become somewhat enlightened, but I confess that I agree with poor, ignorant, much-abused Luke, in thinking that he had a right to that money, as a portion of his unpaid wages. He went to Canada forthwith, and I have not since heard from him. All that winter I lived in a state of anxiety. When I took the children out to breathe the air, I closely observed the countenances of all I met. I dreaded the approach of summer, when snakes and slaveholders make their appearance. I was, in fact, a slave in New York, as subject to slave laws as I had been in a slave state. Strange incongruity in a state called free. Spring returned, and I received warning from the South that Dr. Flint knew of my return to my old place, and was making preparations to have me caught. I learned afterwards that my dress, and that of Mrs. Bruce's children, had been described to him by some of the northern tools, which slaveholders employ for their base purposes, and then indulge in sneers at their cupidity and mean servility. I immediately informed Mrs. Bruce of my danger, and she took prompt measures for my safety. My place as nurse could not be supplied immediately, and this generous, sympathizing lady proposed that I should carry her baby away. It was a comfort to me to have the child with me for the heart is reluctant to be torn away from every object it loves. But how few mothers would have consented to have one of their own babes become a fugitive, for the sake of a poor hunted nurse, on whom the legislators of the country had let loose the bloodhounds! When I spoke of the sacrifice she was making in depriving herself of her dear baby, she replied, "'It is better for you to have baby with you, Linda, for if they get on your track they will be obliged to bring the child to me, and then, if there is a possibility of saving you, you shall be saved.' This lady had a very wealthy relative, a benevolent gentleman in many respects, but aristocratic and pro-slavery. He remonstrated with her for harbouring a fugitive slave, told her she was violating the laws of her country, and asked her if she was aware of the penalty. She replied, "'I am very well aware of it. It is imprisonment and one thousand dollars fine. Shame on my country that it is so! I am ready to incur the penalty. I will go to the state's prison rather than have any poor victim torn from my house to be carried back to slavery. The noble heart, the brave heart, the tears are in my eyes while I write of her. May the God of the helpless reward her for her sympathy with my persecuted people. I was sent into New England, where I was sheltered by the wife of a senator, whom I shall always hold in grateful remembrance. This honourable gentleman would not have voted for the fugitive slave law, as did the senator in Uncle Tom's cabin. On the contrary, he was strongly opposed to it, but he was enough under its influence to be afraid of having me remain in his house many hours. So I was sent into the country, where I remained a month with the baby. When it was supposed that Dr. Flint's emissaries had lost track of me, and given up the pursuit for the present, I returned to New York. End of chapter 40